What's going on, everyone? Back with another episode of the Rugby Player Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Benno. This episode, I spoke to Sean Davies, assistant coach of the Utah Warriors, but also a recently retired professional player from the Glendale Raptors and just been back from the USA World Cup campaign in Japan. So a lot to discuss with Sean over the last couple of months and excited to share it with you guys. Enjoy the episode. Shawnee. Harry, man, how's it going? Very well. How are you? Yeah, doing good, man. Doing good. A little shocked with all this crap going on, but doing good. Yeah, wild. It's, it's like day to day at the moment. You're just expecting yeah. the next big thing to kind of supersede. So obviously, um, the most recent news hasn't been great for anyone, but we're all in it together. Yeah, no, it's all good. I mean, obviously, safety comes first, unfortunately, but no, no, it's all good. And the MLR has been going off. So hopefully next year, everyone will be able to survive and keep going. Yeah, completely. Mate, speaking of safety, um, off air, you were telling me you guys had an earthquake the other day. How's that? Yeah, so yesterday morning, my wife and I woke up at, what, 7 a.m. The uh, corona vacation has been good for sleep, but yeah, 7 a.m. And uh, the whole house was shaking, so I thought it was a little bit of a joke until I looked over at the wife and she was a little upset and the dog was going crazy. So yeah, no, it's just been a bit of a shit show all around in Utah at the moment. One thing after another, mate. That's yeah. insane. Is that, are yeah. they quite common? No, this is the first one they've had in around 50 years, let's say. Of course it had to happen now. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. That's wild. All right, mate. Well, um, obviously, for the listeners that don't know who I'm speaking with, um, Sean Davies from Utah Warriors, actually a coach. Um, so a little bit different than what we're used to, but I'm really excited about this episode just to be able to get perspective from a most recent player who's transitioned into the coaching realms of MLR. So, mate, I might throw over to you and give us a brief background on um, your playing career and now what's led you to Utah. Yeah, so I grew up in South Africa. I finished high school in 2007 and decided to have a little bit of a change. I could have gone into one of the academies back home and, and I always just wanted to go overseas and do something different. So I went to good old BYU. At the time, I was, I mean, I knew it was a Mormon university, but didn't really pay too much attention to that until I got out here. It was a bit of a shock to the system, but wouldn't change it. Great school, great rugby program, loved all of it. So I graduated from BYU, went to uh, Glendale Raptors for a season. They moved on to Life University, and I was a grad assistant over there. Got my master's. And then tried the old pro rugby out for a while for, yep. for, for the short season with the good old Ohio Aviators. That was really enjoyable. Obviously, that ended rather abruptly and then moved to Glendale for three seasons. And uh, after last season, I was done with Glendale and then moved to the Utah Warriors to try this whole coaching thing. And then in between all of that, played with the USA for a while. So how many tests did you get with the US set up? Uh, 28, 28. So I got my first one in 2012 and then uh, good old Mark Tolkien kind of fell off the radar a little bit there. And then when John Mitchell came back and he called me, called me back. So no, all good. And you got your um, eligibility through residency status? Yeah, yeah. So I came over for college. I didn't even really think twice about it. But then when I got my residency, I was super stoked. Bleed uh, red, white and blue. And yeah, no, all yep. good. So Mate, that's great. So why why BYU? Why was that first choice in terms of um, colleges that you were looking at 
to come over to the States. So there's a South African guy that lives in Utah, and he reached out to a bunch of schools back home asking for guys to apply to come out. And it was either go to the University of Utah or BYU. And he just said, quite frankly, BYU is a better school. So he's, if you want that, and, and a better rugby program at the time. So he said, if you want the rugby in the school, go to BYU. And yeah, so I didn't look back, went over and loved it. So, And you ended up winning a national championship there? Yeah, won a couple of national championships. Just uh, a couple, mate? Yeah, just a couple. You know, no big deal. Yeah. MVP, but no one's counting, you know? <laughs> there you go. Um, and that was with um, Carl Sumption? Was that yeah, yeah. Well? yeah, with good old Carl Sumption. Carl Sumption was actually the best man at my wedding. So oh, wow. he's a really good man. He Someone needs to teach him about contraceptive, but no, it's all good. That's too funny, mate. He uh, He's absolutely class, old Kyle. Um, yeah. Enjoyed enjoyed my time with him, obviously with Rooney, and during um, the pro days in Sacramento, it was um, certainly eye opening to to learn. I guess well, he's a local to Utah, right? Yeah, yeah, he's born and bred. Born and bred, so obviously got the Mormon um, characteristics and just that sort of laid back Utah personality. He's a, he's a legend, old Kyle. Yeah, no, he's he's yeah, he's a great guy. He's been playing some bloody good rugby this year too, so. For his sake, I mean, everyone else's, but I was really excited to see how he was going this year. So, 100%. A little, a little unfortunate. Yeah, honestly, like he's he's probably been the form back rower of the competition so far. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. So, it's been. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Great to watch. So, then, mate, off the back of BYU, Glendale Raptors um, for a season and then decided to head over to Life University. How did that come about? So, uh, Dan Payne was the head coach of Life University at the time, and he was the forwards coach slash breakdown coach for the USA. And uh, after a camp, he was just asking me if I'd be eager to come out there, play for the men's team, help coach the undergrad team, and do some school. And I was like, hell yeah, sounds like a good change. So, I just got married before that, said to the wife, hey, you want to move to Atlanta? We didn't really know too much about it. And yeah, just decided to pick up and go down there. And Got a got a good little dog out of it, who's great doggy. But then, uh, yeah, so Atlanta was a bit eye opening for us. It was a little different to good old Utah for her, but no, it was good. We uh, really enjoyed it, and uh, I think it was a good move for our little family going to Atlanta and changing things up a little bit. Yeah, nice. And that I guess was that also around the same time as life started bringing in guys like you. Like I know Butcher was there around the same time you were. AJ McGinty. Um, so there was some pretty good pedigree going to life around the time that you were there, right? Yeah. So, yeah, AJ was there uh, before I got there. And then uh, he got done about six months after I got there. So we played together at Life University. And then obviously Butch came over. There was a, yeah, there was a couple of other guys there. David Gannon, Gonzo, he was a forwards coach. He played for Connock for many a year. Yeah. And I mean, the, the rugby IQ that was floating around there was awesome. I always say that. Life University is the closest thing to an actual academy in the States that you'll get. I mean, and I was lucky. So I had worked under Dan Payne for a while, which is awesome. And then worked under Scott Lawrence for a while, which I think Scott's the best local coach in America by a country mile. So I learned tons from him and always appreciated that. Yeah, I definitely agree um, with that sentiment on Scott. Obviously, he's done a great job over the last couple of years and certainly developed this blueprint of style of rugby that he's implemented and you're seeing that with the Atlanta team now as well um yeah it's it's awesome so mate that's great and then yeah let's touch on it a little bit obviously you and I both involved in it for a hot minute but pro rugby <laughs> um 
flash in the pan. Obviously, I think the best thing that came out of that, which most guys agree with, it was a it was a blueprint for what we have today. Um, probably more what not to do, but um, nonetheless, a pretty cool experience. So, how did you enjoy your time um, with the Ohio Aviators? Yeah, no, I mean, Deadly Doug, like you said, if anything, proved that um, professional rugby in the US is an option. So I'll be forever grateful for him for that. Obviously, he had his shortcomings and was a bit of a cheap bastard in the end. But, I mean, it worked out well now with MLR. But I really enjoyed pro rugby. I mean, if you look at some of the rugby, it started off not the best standard, but towards the end, there was actually some decent rugby going about. I mean, when you bring in guys like Ohio had Jamie McIntosh, Dom Ordock, who really good players. So you had, I think the model was more that you bring these international guys in over and they'll help the standard and the coaching more than the actual coaches. So it was really good that some of the IQs floating around various teams. So no, it was it was awesome. And again, just, just to reiterate that the good old Deadly Doug wasn't the best person for the job, but he, he set the standard and now we have MLR. So again, I'll be forever grateful for him for that. Completely, 100%, mate. And I guess my next question off the back of that is um, with Ohio um, sort of putting in their facilities and infrastructure for the pro, do you think we'll ever see an MLR team come out of those areas again? Yeah, so I know Tom Rooney is, um, is heading that up and he's a great man. He was the head coach for Ohio State rugby team. He's been around there forever. And if there's a man to ever do the job, he's definitely the guy. I know that they've been, the, the Ohio peeps have been trying to either get a team there, buy into other teams. So they're doing all they can to try and get involved in, in the MLR, which is awesome. They have the uh, Obet Stadium there, Fortress Obet, which is awesome. It's, it's a lacrosse slash rugby field. Obviously, it's turf, which in this day and age, I guess you have to get used to. But the facilities are fantastic. So if they can get a team out there, I think it will go really well because by the end of the pro rugby, we actually had a pretty good following. So if they could pick up where we left off, that would be awesome. And again, it's pretty cheap to live there. So the standard of living is pretty good. And if you can get players there, you can get them cheap housing. So that always cuts the cost a little bit. Yeah. I think that whoever does decide to sort of pull the trigger in that area, that as you said, they've got the facilities and infrastructure ready to go to, to make it, make it worthwhile. So yeah, who knows? Um, and then with you heading to Glendale Raptors, you played with them obviously prior to life, but then did seasons one, two um, with them in the MLR. Talk us through that experience. Yeah, so we had, I mean, that that first year of, year of MLR, it will always haunt me how we didn't win. We had a great group of guys. I mean, David Williams pretty much had the pick of the litter when it comes to who he wanted because at that stage, Glendale was, had the facilities had the coaching staff, so everyone kind of wanted to go to Glendale. And now, obviously, all the other teams have caught up. So back then, I mean, we had guys like Ben Landry, Will McGee, Bryce Campbell, John Quill. The list just goes on. Butch was there. The list just keeps going on. Sam Figs. So, like, I mean, again, it just haunts me that we didn't didn't win, win that first year. And that's now that especially I'm working with some of the Seattle coaching staff on that first year. They never let me, let, let me live it down. But... No, I really enjoyed my time at Glendale. And I, it was, and my wife and I, it was a tough decision to, on whether we wanted to make the move. But in terms of the next next uh, career, it was, it was a really good opportunity to come back to Utah. And I'm grateful for Kimball 
who was the CEO slash GM of Utah for the opportunity. But no, again, I really, I love my time at Glendale and I hope some of the rumors that everyone's obviously hearing around them, that they will be sticking around in the MLR for a very long time. Yeah. Um, I, I guess the other one I want to touch on, obviously, you mentioned that there was a lot of um, star power in that team for season one at Glendale. I think you guys had something like eight or nine national guys. Um, so having that cohesion between you, you guys um, at MLR level and then going on to national level must have been a huge advantage when it came time to those national games. Yeah, no, it really was. I mean, um, Gary Gold's pretty open about the fact that at times he started myself and Will for international level just because we had that chemistry already coming from uh, Glendale, now Colorado. So, I mean, it always helps when you have the same guys building that chemistry, working with each other at the at the club level. I just wish that we could have got more trophies in the cabinet during our time there. But again, I wouldn't have changed anything. It was really enjoyable. And the group of guys we had there was fantastic. So it was, it was awesome. It's just a little pity about how it did end the end of last year. But again, you have to change in order to move forward. Yeah. And then obviously not taking anything away from Davey Williams um, in terms of coaching, but would you suggest that maybe because of the star power that you guys had there, that a lot of the stuff that you were doing was player-driven? No, I mean, Davey Williams, he knows he knows a lot about rugby. I think the unfortunate part was that he was trying to do a bit too much, I think. He was head coach. At times, it felt like he was director of rugby. He was attack coach, defensive coach, SNC. He just... He, he wanted that control. And again, he knew, he knows tons about rugby. I think it all just got a little bit much towards the end. And when we started losing, unfortunately, it, he reacted the wrong way. I would say, in my opinion, that he reacted the wrong way and he didn't get the best out of the guys. So obviously, some guys need kick in the butt. Some guys need a little cuddle. And towards the end, I think we're all getting multiple kicks in the butt. So, And that obviously doesn't get the best out of most players. So towards the end, it was a bit, a bit hard last year. Yeah, I mean, you hear about these types of stories from um, all walks of rugby in terms of just being able to manage different personalities within a, a playing group and just instilling a culture that's um, cohesive. Would you say that the um, – I know obviously the leadership group at Colorado is – pretty envious to any team um, back back in those days but um, how much do you think that that leadership group helped the probably the inexperienced players um, day to day no it was yeah the, the nice thing about how we had it uh, Glenn in the last few years is that you had guys like Quilly Butch Will myself and then we also had a bunch, we had an academy coming through so we would try and get involved with the academy guys as much as possible and then the head guys like Mika Cruz the first year, who was still an academy player, he um, was coming through. So we'll be training with these guys and they're really reaping the rewards now. I mean, if you look at Mika Cruz, I think he uh, hasn't reached his ability yet. And if I'm quite honest, I think that he should be already be an eagle with his skill set he has. He just needs to be more consistent. So some of these guys coming through are really awesome. They just need that example, like you said, personnel-wise. And I think... With Glendale now, they still have that personnel. I mean, you look at Rena Ranger, Digby Owen, he was meant to come over. So they still have the star quality and hopefully they can get the best out of those younger guys coming through. Yeah, completely, mate. I think um, just touching on Mika, um, 
I totally agree with you there. Like the the expectations are high with him, but obviously as well, the, the potential um, is exciting to see. So I'm sure we'll see him in, a, in an Eagles jersey um, sooner rather than later. So on the Eagles jersey, mate, 28 tests. Um, first one, 2012. Talk us through the debut. Yeah, it was really good. It was actually in Glendale, which is quite funny. I go. played against, yeah, against Georgia in Glendale and uh, didn't know much about Georgia at the time. Obviously, now they pretty formidable foe, but we uh, we won. So that was always a good test match and decent night out in Glendale. So I was lucky that my American family, the people who brought me out here, they were able to come watch. And I was dating my wife or my girlfriend at the time who was able to come out. So it was awesome. Obviously, growing up, I wanted to wear a different color. But ever since I came over the States, I've 100% bought, in, 100% bought into it and very grateful for my time with the States. Do you think um, that was sort of put upon you or, or suggested to you that maybe the national squad was um, an option for you? Or did you sort of take that upon yourself to refocus and say, I've got an opportunity here to play international rugby and I'm going to make the most of it? Man, to be honest, when I, when I first came over, I was just awesome, rugby in the States, let's have some fun, study, and then go back to South Africa and see what happens. And then uh, in two th- beginning of 2011, Eddie O'Sullivan reached out to me and was like, hey, the World Cup's coming up, you're about to be eligible, we're looking at you. And I had a trip to go back home and I actually cancelled it because I, in order to get the eligibility, with all the rules, I wasn't able to go back home. So super stoked, trained my ass off, and then nothing came from it. So I was like, okay, at least there's an option. They have been looking at me, so we'll see what happens. And then right after the 2011 World Cup, that's when talks came in, and then I went to that next camp. So ever since I got that first call from Eddie O, I've, uh, yeah, 100% bought into it. And, I mean, to be quite honest, my last, whatever, eight years of my life, nine years of my life has been 100% focused to – wear the USA jersey and then make a World Cup. So, yeah. Let's talk about World Cups, mate. Japan um, obviously must have been an incredible experience. Um, Speaking to Butch and Nate Brakely and a few of the guys over here that were involved in that as well, talk us through um, the build-up, I guess, 12 months, six months out and and how you guys came together leading into the World Cup. Yeah, it felt like about 17 months the preseason we had leading to the World Cup was bloody hard. We were at the Air Force Academy, and I think the Bronco we ran there was probably the hardest thing I've done in my entire life up in Colorado Springs, which is about 10 million feet altitude. But no, it was really good. Um, We have a great group of guys for the World Cup. And I mean, the 12 months, 18 months or whatever it was with the lead up with that group, was awesome. Obviously, we had a few good wins, being in Scotland and had some momentum. And then I think before the World Cup, we played a really good game against uh, Canada in Glendale. And then from there, we just kind of didn't reach the potential that we were hoping. But with that group, we had a really good group of guys. And for me, especially having been spoken to right before the 2011 World Cup, missing out on the 2015 World Cup, the 2019 World Cup was bloody special. And a good note to finish my uh, rugby career on. Yeah, I mean, the, that 17 months that you talked about in preparation for the World Cup, it's, it's a long time for anyone that's mentally focusing for, for six weeks. Um, but I think the cohesion 
that you saw on the field from you guys um, and getting the results off the back of it, like IRB ranking 13 or 11, which was the highest in USA's history. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So we did really well when uh, Gary Gold first came in because we had we had the John Mitchell mentality of run everything, skills, 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 skills. And then we moved over to Gary, who had more of a, a territory, back your defense, play me off. And the combination of the two were, quite frankly, bloody amazing. So then from that, we reaped awesome rewards. And then as we went forward, we kept playing the territory, uh, the Gary Gold, which is awesome. And then we kind of, uh, our skill set may have dropped a little bit. So I'm not exactly sure. I'm not as intelligent as those gentlemen. But um, yeah, so unfortunately, we didn't get the results that we were hoping for at the World Cup. But again, it was still an unbelievable experience. And I wouldn't change anything just to all the guys that we, like you said, the 17 months spending uh, quality time. I mean, obviously, Butch got a bit too much, as he always does. But no, everyone else was was awesome experience. Yeah, and, and on experiences, that Scotland game. Um, talk about the confidence that you guys got away after that game because, like, awesome to see. And, and the way that that game finished as well, like, it just felt like that was the the stepping stone that USA Rugby needed to go to the next level. And it certainly so, showed. So talk us about that experience. Yeah, I mean, that Scotland game was probably one of my favourite rugby experiences that I've had. We uh, Going into the game, it was the meeting the night before and AJ, AJ McGinty, uh, stood up and just said to the boys, essentially, hey, like, we are going to win this. Just have the mentality, we are going to win this. And he just went, Paulie, Polisiki, you're going to run over so-and-so, just going through some of the boys. And we just took so much belief from that. And then going into the game, we didn't have the best start. Uh, Scotland scored pretty quickly, but we had that belief. And I think, I mean, even that last, the last 10 minutes, it felt like they were camped on our line. We just, I mean, the, the belief and the effort that went into that game from the boys, I mean, I think we 100% deserved that win. And yes, it wasn't Scotland's main team, but they had just beaten Canada by 50 points the week before. And they went down to Argentina and beat them by 45 points the next week. So I think that that was one of the best games I'd ever played. And I think a lot of personnel on that team would say that was probably one of the best games they've played. And I think we took so much belief from that, that even going into the England game of the World Cup, I had that same feeling that we will win, have that mentality and it was just a different beast going into that one. Yeah, of course. And um, I think off the back of that Scotland game, you guys went on a bit of a winning streak um, building into the World Cup. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is friend or foe, but um, your relationship, I guess, over your playing career at the national level with Nate Osberger, um, both of you guys are absolute talents. And the fact that, coaches were creative enough to get both of you on the field at the same time is a testament to both your playing styles and abilities. So talk us through the relationship and sort of the competitiveness that you have with Nate. Yeah, Nate and I have an, have an interesting relationship. He's a, a great guy. We both super competitive human beings. So at times we were really good mates and at times we were at each other's throats trying to cut each other's head off. So I think um, without Nate, and I'm sure he would say the exact same, without Nate, I wouldn't have been as good of a player as I was because when I was at home training or doing extra skills, I was always thinking, freak, I know this guy is doing it, so I've got to be doing doing some extras to catch up. So 
And then Mitch, obviously, Marty and Mitch and Nate was the man. So I worked my ass off then and uh, got better from it. And again, I'm sure he would say the same thing. And then we had Dave Hewitt, who was the interim coach when we played Georgia and Germany. And funnily enough, uh, Dave uh, Williams was assistant coach then. So I was the man. And then uh, when we went with Gary, it was a bit sixes depending on the day. So no, it was it was aw- awesome to have Nate throughout my career. And again, I think we both got so much better from it. So he's a great human being, a little bit of a intense relationship at times and we've certainly had a few scuffles on the field but uh, better for it Matt you hear those stories all the time between teammates or or players in the same positions as you said I think that competitive nature brings out the best in each other and once you take a step back and you're off the field and you appreciate that it it means so much more so um, yeah it's as I said from from the sidelines it's it's awesome to see both of you sort of push each other and and understanding that sort of dynamic is, is great to see yeah, and I mean, I mean, and Nate's probably one of the most athletic human beings I've seen in my life. He's an absolute freak. So the fact that he can play wing, scrum off, I mean, probably bloody eighth man if you want at times. He's yeah, he's an absolute freak. So yeah, again, I'm very grateful for him and his ability and how much we pushed each other. How many tours did you end up going on overseas with the US team? Man, that's a great question. Uh, far too many. No. I think uh, so. I'm a U.S. citizen now, yeah. but the amount of visas and shite I had to had to apply for throughout the years that would be a great tell. But I'm actually not sure. I've never looked back at that. But I've been seen a ton of countries that I definitely wouldn't have. So it was been, it's been a great experience. Tell us, obviously, without touching on Japan just yet, outside of the World Cup, tell us um, your favorite touring experience. I really enjoyed Fiji with the PNC. I mean, just the people just freaking absolutely adore rugby. And I think, I mean, I love rugby with a passion. And just to see everyone, we've, we're bloody training middle of the day. And obviously, sevens is their main thing. So we're busy training. And guys walk up trying to get Madison Hughes' autograph or Marty's autograph. And it's just like, guys, we're middle of the training. You can at least wait until afterwards. And then... We would go to, there was a coffee shop close there and I'd go with Marty and the guy would write Yosefo in his coffee and it's just unreal to see. And then at night, there was always, so we were staying right next to a park and there was always a touch game going on every night and I'll just go walk out there, watch the boys play and it's one touch and you can see why these guys on the seven circuits are such freaks because the amount of offloads and 30 meter passes out the back were just absolutely unreal. And I think you could almost take anyone off the street, put them on the seventh circuit, and they'll probably go well. Yeah, I've had the same experience a long time ago going to Fiji. And I certainly think those types of tours put things in perspective and just make you appreciate the game so much more for what it what it offers. So um, you were there for, what, a fair while. Fiji was a base for you guys during the PNC, yeah? Yeah, so we were there for two weeks. I mean, obviously quite wet and quite a bit of rain, but no, it was amazing. And then also, I really enjoyed Georgia. It's these random countries, like Georgia's a bit of a random country, but when we go to Old Town, Georgia, and in Tbilisi, just to see these places, it's just amazing. Because obviously, being in America, been in Utah, West Coast most of my time, and then just some of these countries are just centuries, I mean, sorry, yuck, centuries and old towns are centuries old, and it's just awesome to see. Yeah. Do you get home much? 
Last time I so last time I saw my parents was when we played Ireland in Dublin, which again was a which was a bloody fantastic experience. But yeah, so my parents came out to that, and then the Christmas before that, so a year and whatever that is, three months, I went home. It's just expensive for me and my wife to go back there. And then, yeah, we just try and see my parents at least once a year. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the exact same boat as well with Australia. And obviously that trend yeah. doesn't look like it's changing anytime soon with the current climate. So. <laughs> Mate, some bloody cheap flats. I was actually looking to, just for fun yeah. on a good old scar scanner to buy a flat. If I wanted to buy a flat today, you could go back home. I could get almost first class, the cheapest I could ever buy a flat. So. That's a good point. You'd, you'd be in if you want to run the gauntlet, weeks, though. though, immediately. I don't know if South Africa does oh, okay. that. <laughs> there you go. Did you grow up on a farm or in town? Nah, so I'm from Durban. Yep. So English English boy, Durban, grew up by the beach, bit of a skater trash growing up, surf, and then, yeah, raggers on the side. So, no, it was definitely not farmland, but no, it was right good. Um, and what about any any team schoolmates or teammates that you played with back in the day that have gone on? Uh. I mean, yeah, a few from school-wise, uh, when I was uh, eighth grade, Waylon Murray was my head boy. He's got a bunch of Springbok caps, played with Dale Chadwick, who's got a bunch of Sharks caps, and then played with Pat Lambie a little bit, uh, school stuff. Were you, wait, and uh, where did you go to, where were you at school with Pat Lambie? No, so I played with him a little bit at Natal okay. schools. And yeah, so he went to my class, which is a very posh yeah. school. And I went to Westville Boys, which is not so much. He, I have a funny story about Pat Lambie. He came, I went to the King School um, in Australia, which is pretty much the equivalent of Michael House. And he did a... Oh, okay. He, okay. Did, um, he did like a, a three, four month exchange um, back in year 10. Yeah. And the rule that we had at our school was exchange students couldn't play first or second sport. Where he would, have, really? he would have comfortably been a walk-on <laughs> in either rugby or cricket, so he had to play third, third eleven cricket and third fifteen rugby while he was here. And literally every week he was getting two hundred runs off the bat <laughs> and getting like forty points every game. It was an absolute piss take. Yeah, people always said that he was actually better at cricket than yeah. rugby. He just enjoyed rugby yeah, more. So that's funny, um, mate. Japan, let's dive into it. Yeah, Japan was bloody awesome, man. I mean, I, when next is it going to be a World Cup in a place like that? And with all this corona stuff going on, I'm very grateful that this happened now and not last yeah. year. Otherwise, who knows what would have happened. But uh, yeah, no, Japan was awesome. Like the people, the fans just bought in 100% to the World Cup. And you could see, I mean, my wife came over for a while and she was just like, this is absolutely bloody incredible because obviously with the rugby going on, we couldn't really pay too much attention to this um, in the stadiums, at least to uh, the average Joe, but no, it was an unbelievable experience, especially that we started. So when we first got to the world cup or to Japan, we went to Okinawa, which is in the middle of BF nowhere down yep. South. And uh, we always made the joke that, Oh, it'd be nice when we get to Japan and actually start the world cup. Cause we were just in the middle That's of nowhere. Funny. And rugby wasn't really a thing there. And you could tell that people didn't really even know that the World Cup was going on. But it was really good for our preparation because there weren't too many distractions. We could train. It was probably the most human place in the entire universe. So we're getting getting used to that. 
And then um, once we moved from Okinawa, we went to Osaka, and then that was just the complete opposite experience. Osaka is obviously a massive city and a huge rugby hub, and people had bought into it so much. So no, that was that was those two were just the complete opposite, and it was a great experience all in all. Dear, I mean, you hear um, from other teams in terms of their preparation into Japan, um, sort of trying to like simulate the humidity and all that stuff. Was any of that? brought in by Gary for the Eagles going into the World Cup? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously we were in Colorado for about two months. And, I mean, that's the complete opposite, complete contrast. So we were there in Colorado for the altitude training and all that stuff. But we didn't really get the humidity. We would do the old soap ball every now and then and that stuff. But you can't, you can't simulate it. I mean, for me, growing up, in Durban, which is essentially the same, and I've been in Atlanta for a few years, you, I, I was pretty used to that humidity. But then Japan's just another beast. So especially Okinawa, because we were right on the ocean too. So trying to get used to all of that, we would use doing soap training, using a whole bunch of different balls, but it's just it's just a different beast. And then when you go to Osaka, which is an indoor stadium, which essentially just becomes a hot yeah. box, it was, yeah, it was completely different. And that was an amazing, amazing atmosphere. But yeah, as if you watch the game, it wasn't the prettiest yeah, game. I mean, I think the highlight for any rugby fan in the US in terms of that World Cup was probably the that first half against France that um, you guys put on. Um, that was that was awesome to see. But I think, as you said, not the results that you wanted, but such an incredible experience. And I think a lot of takeaways for anyone involved for you know the next the next one. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there was there's quite a few young players on that team. So, you obviously have Ruben de Haas, who's still 12 years old. <laughs> so, he's he, he's gotten so much from that uh, in Japan. And I think uh, towards the end of Japan, when we realized the results weren't going our way, a bunch of the younger guys did get more game time. So, Melon Ojibori played the last game against Tonga. And honestly, he had a bloody fantastic game. So, I think the future is really good with USA Rugby, especially with the MLR keeping up and these young guns coming through. So hopefully next World Cup we can get a little bit more of a result. And I think with Gary, I'm not sure who the rest of the staff is right now, but I think we've got the right people in charge. It's just actually now finding the right personnel and then getting them those experiences like we spoke about in Japan. And yeah, stuff. completely agree. Let's talk off-field now. Who... Um... Who dove into the Japanese culture the most? I'm picturing Butcher. I mean, good old, yeah, Butch, Butch is Butch, but good old Paulie Mullen. He's a great man. And whenever we go anywhere, he just freaking goes for a walk. We lose him for about two days, goes on a walkabout, comes back, and he has about a nice Japanese knife, tells us about all the sushis he's been to. Won't say of some of the other yep. things, but no, he's a great man and he just goes for strolls and just dives straight into the culture. So, no, Paulie Mullen is a great man. Yeah, right. Us. Who became the sake expert? Oh, that's that, that would have to be good old William yep. McGee. You know, good old, good old Willie, he, unfortunately, didn't see the field too much, but he saw a lot of, lot of other things yep. in Japan. I mean... The hindsight now is probably an amazing perspective for something like that. He probably preferred it that way, knowing how everything else panned out. So, yeah, no, hundred percent. Obviously, he'd rather yeah. have got more game time. But I mean, the fact that we all got this experience, and yeah, I think 
I think for me too, I, I took a lot of the shit way too seriously. So now looking back in hindsight, I kind of wish that I did more things and all that stuff. But no, in, in the moment, obviously, you have to take all of the rugby stuff very seriously. No, mate, it's honestly, as you said, like in the moment, it's hard to take a step back and just appreciate those types of moments. And um, I just, I think after each game, seeing the two teams line up and acknowledge the crowd is like such a special moment at the World Cup, particularly in Japan. So... Um, to see you boys sort of get to experience that, but then also hear the off-field stuff that you guys did as well, um, pretty special. So, mate, that's, that's the best part about playing rugby, isn't it? The tours and, and the off-field stuff that you get to, to talk about amongst each other. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, when you look back at the games, you don't you don't look back at the game too much. You look back at, I mean, to honest, the anxiety heading into the game, I mean, the, the beers after the game with the boys, you look back at the coffee shops you went to, all the different local spots, the food you ate, and then obviously the games are awesome, but you always have video of the games you can look back on and stuff like that. If they're smaller, the pictures you look back on with the boys and stuff like that, and then, yeah, just, just being with yeah. the guys. Well, perfect segue, mate. You've just walked me straight into it. It, it feels <laughs> like every rugby player in their DNA blueprint feels the absolute desire to own a coffee shop one day. And by the sounds of it, you're no different. <laughs> yeah, man. So when I, was in, uh, when I was in Glendale, I was extremely close to pulling the trigger on buying a coffee trailer. I'd already spoken to the Glendale peeps. They were going to let me uh, put out the game. I was going to teach the boys what to do. So then I, if I was playing, if I wasn't playing, my wife is a nurse. So I was already talking to people about possibly taking the trailer to because she works night shifts obviously nurses are saints and all have to work night shifts for the most part and then the coffee shop at her hospital closed at 6 p.m so i was going to take it there for nights at some stages and sorting all the stuff out but then ended up moving and uh my wife decided that buying a house would be a better investment for some reason. So we're doing that. And then the, the old coffee shop slash trailer is on the back for, now, for now. But still very much. For now. Oh, it will be opened. Oh, don't you worry. It will be open. Yeah, right. Stage. Well, um, I don't know, mate. We'll have, we might have to see some viral coffee making from, from Shawnee Davis over the next couple of weeks oh. while we've got a bit of time off. Don't worry. My latte art there is on go. point. There you go. <laughs> well, mate, um, I think the final thing that I definitely want to talk about with you, which is such a unique story, is obviously playing in the MLR for the first couple of seasons, going to a World Cup, but then you may be sort of the first figure or marquee player that's now transitioned into coaching. Um, talk us through that experience, and was that always in, in the plans for you? Yeah, so... To be honest, when uh, after the 2015 World Cup, when I didn't get the nod for that, I was almost going to go into coaching because I was coaching at Life and I was I was loving it and really enjoying it. So I was going to stick around at Life, possibly coach there and just see how it goes. But then Pro Rugby came up, so I thought, oh, I might as well just have a little more fun, see how it goes. Ended up getting caught in with Mitch. So I was like, well, that's a bloody, bloody good experience. And from Mitch, I can learn more. So I was like, sweet, I'll keep doing that. And then, yes, one thing, uh, one thing went after another. So the plan was always to get back into coaching. And Glendale knew that. And obviously, I was speaking to Kimball with uh, Utah quite a bit too. So at the end of the World Cup, I spoke to Glendale. There wasn't much of an opportunity to do coaching there. I spoke to Kimball. 
and he was super keen. I was super keen to come back to Utah, which is my wife's home. So yeah, it fell in, fell in line pretty easily. And then um, I've been absolutely loving it. We've got a great group of guys here. We've played some bloody good rugby at times. And then unfortunately, obviously, we haven't had time. So the big thing for us with Utah was just trying to get that consistency going, which I felt like we actually were starting to get down. And then this bloody coronavirus happened. So we have to wait and see what happens. Mate, I, I genuinely feel for you guys um, as much as, as I do for, for Rooney. But as you just mentioned there, like you can clearly see the, the growth in the team this year, um, particularly with the consistency of performance. And obviously a credit to you and um, Chris Latham as head coach there um, for, for instilling that and probably giving more of a, a modern player's perspective Um to those boys so that there's something a little bit more to relate to. But, yeah, the on-field stuff, your last game beating the, you know, two-time defending championship championship team is is awesome. So I'm sure you guys would have had, you know, a big season to come if if this didn't all happen. So I, I feel for you. Yeah, just on that too. It's, I mean, obviously beating Seattle was huge. But the big thing for Utah, as I'm sure you know, being the league, is that everyone was, well, Utah will be good for the first 60 minutes. And then after that, they'll crash and burn because of their fitness, blah, 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 blah. And then Seattle, beating them on the 90th minute was the most satisfying thing for the coaches, staff, players, everything. Because, we've, I mean, against New England, we came back and beat them. But against Seattle, it was finally, okay, we are here. We can play for 90 minutes. We have the fitness. We have the skills. On our day, we can beat pretty much anyone. It's just, again, getting that consistency. So the fact that we won in the 90th minute, I can't express the satisfaction again. And the at Starfire. Yeah, and at Starfire. And obviously, Seattle hasn't had the best year, but they still got the personnel. And I feel like they were actually starting to hit their straps. So if you watch the game, it was a bloody good game of rugby, more for the MLR than anything totally, else. Totally, mate. Um... Final big question I want to throw at you. Um, obviously, you've been a professional player for a while now, now a professional coach. What what are the things that you've sort of learned or that's opened your eyes as a coach that maybe you didn't see as a player? Just, I mean, I always knew that coaching took time, but bloody hell, my wife gets so annoyed with me with the amount of time that I'm watching film, doing stuff, especially on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, getting prepared for everything. It's just, yeah, it takes it for a, for, I'm not saying I'm a good coach, but a coach who cares and really wants the best of the players. It just takes hours on hours on end. The good thing for me is that I absolutely love it. And it's not really work because even when I was a player, I'll just be watching rugby 24 seven. So it's pretty much the same, but now I just have more direction with it. But yeah, I think people don't really understand how much time and effort coaches actually put into I mean, even the 20-minute presentation. That's because you're all useless at PowerPoints, mate. <laughs> I've got a lot better, let's just say that. True. So <laughs> talk about player relationships then. Obviously, you've sort of mingled a lot coming off um, a career in the last couple of months. Like, do you think that's helped you with your coaching? Yeah, 100%. I mean, especially, well, unfortunately, there's I've seen some dark days over the last three years so I've learned a lot of what not to do more than what actually to do so for me my philosophy with coaching is 
give the boys as much detail as possible so they know their role. Because obviously, if you don't know your, your role, you either go into a shell and do nothing or you become butch and do way too much. <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> no, just joking, butch. But then the next thing is just putting a smile on people's faces. If they know the detail and know their role and can do that with confidence and then they're happy, I guarantee you for the most part, the players are going to play some I mean, rugby. Mate, you've nailed it on the head. I think from an outsider looking at the Utah team at the moment, the one thing that those boys thrive on is confidence and consistency. And when they have both, they're one of the best teams in the competition when they put it all together. And I think what you guys have brought as a coaching staff is exactly those two things. So, yeah, awesome. No, 100%. And then when you have your old Aussie yeah. mate, Chris, at the helm, uh, yeah, I mean, the boys just thrive with him. He's a great man, obviously has a good rugby knowledge, but if anything, he just brings confidence and swagger. He just, yeah, he always, he is the most competitive man in the entire world. And he, you could tell that from day one. And if he's not here to win, he's not going to be here. So the boys kind of just thrive off that. And he, every, every training, every meeting, you can tell how much this means to him. I mean, obviously being here, but also the winning way. Mate, now we've got eight months, ten months until preseason starts again. What you guys can put together off the field to get ready for next year is going to be exciting to watch. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, it's, it's where we're at at the moment. But... There's a silver lining on everything. So maybe the detail and the strategy that you guys can implement off the field now is going to push that team forward. Yeah, no, 100%. And to be honest, with Utah, everything came together pretty late. So at the start of the season, we were pretty behind the eight ball. I mean, Chris had came the middle of January. A bunch of our players only came the middle of January. So trying to put stuff together last minute was kind of difficult. And for how late it was, I feel like the guys, for one, bought in 100%, and I'm grateful for that. And the staffing, the staff, sorry, bought in 100%, and it was just coming together. So, again, it's unfortunate with the MLR, but we all understand that it's, I mean, obviously everyone's safety comes first. I mean, with rugby, but also more importantly, outside of rugby. And then, um, yeah, the good thing about the MLR is that it's here to stay, so we all get to fight another day. 100%. Totally agree. Mate. Thanks so much for your time. It was awesome to catch up. I think your story is um, one that's a must listen just in terms of your playing career and now transitioning into coaching. You're certainly not going to be the last guy to do it in the MLR. So you're pioneering the way for everyone else, mate. Well done. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'm just stoked to be involved with rugby still, Harry. So no, I right. appreciate it. Take care, brother. No, awesome. Appreciate it, Harry. Yeah, and just to everyone, make sure you support uh, MLR as much as possible but be safe and yeah we look forward to next year see you legend